Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. The uh, socialist comedy podcast for everyone. I'm Kate Willett. And I'm Mohana Dilshekhi. I was like thinking about... Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, I was. You said socialist today, and I was thinking about that. Where I don't know. I feel like we. Yeah, I'm a socialist. We sometimes have anarchists and communists on, and all that stuff. I, yeah, <laughs> I'm down I for mean, whatever. Or 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 a safe space for everyone who's not a neoliberal. Yeah, exactly. or Republican. Yeah, yeah. So whatever, whatever it is, you you fall outside of that. And whatever you know whatever you believe in yeah you're fine yeah <laughs> you're allowed to listen to this podcast you know we welcome our uh neoliberal friends if they want to listen to if you want to listen it, you can even honestly subscribe to the patreon like we'll take your money yeah yeah you can promote it on social media you know just be like please don't listen to this show and then the people who hate you will turn out and listen or you could send the show to your enemies and see if you know they they'll give it a listen if you really you know hate socialism i feel like anti-communist propaganda is having a little resurgence here um and okay what i mean by that specifically is i think that like during the uh the high days of the burning campaign you know especially towards the end when it was clear that there was you know some level of success um it seemed like uh people were kind of like it was becoming uh, out of fashion to just you know out of hand dismiss like socialism is a thing or do the classic old talking points of like mm. communism killed so many people as if what anybody here is trying to create is like stalinism i mean except for like a, a few guys on twitter okay but like Today, <laughs> yeah yeah there, today there was this book review in the new york times um of malcolm harris's book called palo alto which the book review is you know just kind of classic mccarthyism capitalism is the best system in the world how dare he not be sufficiently deferential communism kills you know as if capitalism does not but uh, anyway i reached out to him on twitter and he came on the show so we oh, have a badass interview yeah. in the second half of this episode which i am uh very excited about how are you it's also funny it's also funny seeing like what the new york times are like just like regular people on like new liberals on twitter called a called a communist and then you look into it and it's just a guy who call, who said that Diane Feinstein should retire because she's 95. Yeah. And they're like, what are you, a fucking communist? And I'm just like, <laughs> no, I just believe in <laughs> that time is linear, you know? Yeah. And they're like, no. I mean, I think Malcolm uh, self-identifies as a communist. But yes, in general, Yeah, that's no, true. I, I get that. But yeah, it's just such a big umbrella that it just doesn't make any sense. It's the same way, like... It's the same way, like republic, like how Republicans talk about left wing. Yeah, you know when they're like, "Yeah, Biden is a left wing communist," and I'm just like, "Stop making him sound so cool." Yeah, I know that would be amazing if we just had some fucking communists in the White House. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not expecting that they will let that let us vote that in. I mean, you know, it's uh, we are very far from that. 
right now. Oh yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, let's let's just get a get a. I don't know. Yeah, get, get someone who's not a who who's who who doesn't believe in Jesus in the in the White House first, and then you know they can even get like a Jewish guy to be president even once. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was crazy when like because most of the people who were super anti Bernie the the media the the angle that they did was that you know he was a radical left socialist or whatever but every once in a while you get somebody who is just like i don't think that we should have a, a jewish person and it's like wow okay you know yeah yeah so, exactly i'm like oh i forgot about that point you uh <laughs> i didn't know that we were doing that but uh sure yeah great not a great point um so you, you know the most most of this episode today is about Malcolm Harris's book, which it covers a lot of topics that I find really interesting. Um, you, the history of California, specifically the history of California through a materialist lens. And, you know, he, he goes into uh, the gold rush, um, the tragedy, uh, the atrocity, really, that was Japanese internment and just how it's all kind of playing out today, that continuous history, you know, to these things that, um, you know, we have now like a effective altruism and, you know, just <laughs> Elon Musk and all that shit. And, you know, I think that, uh, I think you'll like it, but for now we wanted to talk about this terrible environmental disaster that happened in East Palestine, Ohio, the train derailment, which I'm sure mm -hmm. most of our listeners are aware of. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's always a good excuse to, to talk about how much Mayor Pete sucks. It's, it's, it's honestly like, it's such a, such a, I mean, not great, but it's, it's obviously this is a very like, incredibly sad incident but it feels like a metaphor for his whole you know administration like his whole like d dealing with stuff just like a huge train wreck that he can't yeah that he did not stop yeah yeah, yeah it's definitely and, and literally like nine days after it happened like finally he tweeted you know like he was like he 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 was like in the wake of the uh east palestine related derailment and the impact on hundreds of residents. We're seeing a lot of newfound, renewed and welcome interest in our work in our work on rail safety. So I wanted to share more about what we've been doing in that area. And I was just like, oh cool man. Taking that like, money I know this, from corporate yeah. lobbyists. Yeah. Uh this disaster that happened uh is is a really great segue to some of the good stuff I've been doing. I can't believe that it took him 10 days to say something that is just outrageous i mean look if you i i mean if you are like a regular person who makes even a minor mistake at work you know you have to clear that up right away or you're gonna get fired you probably would get fired for just making a ma major mistake um but you know pete buddha judge is uh not being held accountable really whatsoever and of course you know the the, t the typical suspects are, are so angry at the attempts to hold him accountable at all um the lever yeah. which is david Stern's oh yeah news network has been doing incredible reporting 
on this and because um, it's know. it's insane i mean like it's it, the only thing i can compare it to like something like chernobyl you know like literally like wildlife dying P- people are like talking about like they're all of their pets dying and like obviously not to forget the effect on human beings which is like you know that will that will come in the future like yeah, cancers I mean, and the, all of that stuff yeah that's the thing is like the you know the defenders are out here you know like oh um well it didn't kill anyone you don't know that it's gonna i mean it's sometimes that stuff doesn't happen immediately but i would imagine releasing a ton of toxic chemicals into the atmosphere is gonna have some kind of health impact on people and exactly a lot of that is how is that different from uh like the 9-11 first responders still to this day almost barely getting care and for something that happened like 20 years ago. So it's the same. It's just like you will see it in the future and then it will be a different administration and they will not care because something happened in the past or something even worse is going to happen because the environment is not getting any better. So the lever has been doing some really good reporting on this. They've mm-hmm. really been, you know, diving into to what Buddha judge can do specifically. And I'll just read you yeah. this little section um, from an article that they put out that we'll link in the show notes. Um, but okay, here we go. Rail law and regulatory experts interviewed by the lever agreed that Buddha judges transportation department can and should redo that analysis. And what they mean by that analysis is a, a previous analysis that said that, um, the, the transportation department actually did not have power to, um, to regulate these breaks. Um, so can and should uh, redo, uh, that analysis to allow for reinstatement of the breaking rule. The Federal Railroad Administration's mission is to promote rail safety, said John Risch, a retired railroad worker and former legislative director of the Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transport Workers Union, referring to an agency within the Transportation Department. If they believe that ECP brakes are essential to rail safety, they could require ECP brakes on certain trains or whatever they want to do. Rish added that nothing prevents Buttigieg from using his existing rulemaking authority to expand the definition of a high hazard flammable train to cover trains like the one in Ohio. Um, so on, right now, certain types of safer brakes are required on highly flammable trains and under the existing definition, um, this train was exempt from more stringent safety regulations, but it, it certainly looked highly flammable um, when it like uh, caught on fire and then blew up into a uh, giant toxic mushroom cloud. So, you know. It... You know, yeah, no, honestly, it's not just that, like some of the stuff I read, so, uh, the the fact that it's it's it was burning, uh, some of the media and some of the like, like people in politics try to present this as a good thing that this is burning, like this is a way to get rid of it. And it's just like, do, don't lie to people. Like literally anyone who has a simple understanding of chemistry know that this is worse. Like they're like, oh, when has uh, 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 putting chemicals on fire has ever been bad? I'm like, probably always. Yeah, I mean. I think that people, I think the real executives should be um, 
rounded up and thrown in jail simply for killing people's pets that alone would be enough absolutely no absolutely and it's it's like i i was also like reading this thing where you know like the like like you read about like these some of the uh like the people that work with these chemicals and it says like during the eight hour shift they should not be exposed to more than like one part per million average. So this is like literally like almost nothing because anything more than that will affect people who work with these hazardous material. And now we have these five cars that literally went on fire and you have gas exploding and fish dying and ecosystem being destroyed. And it was supposed to be like, I mean, look look at the good side. It's burning. So it's not going to be there for, for so long. So, and now these people are obviously getting nothing. And and and, I, like, did you hear about like, are they gonna like offer them like any kind of money or settlements or any of that shit? I don't think so. Um, actually, yeah. I I mean, you know, it's probably still up in the air, but you yeah, know, it doesn't look like anything at all sufficient has has happened whatsoever, or is even really being considered. Um, <laughs> So, you know, another piece of this is that, uh, you know, the unions warned us that this was going to happen um, yeah. the, about the uh, staffing cutbacks, um, which, you know, they have like a bare bones amount of people doing the job, um, having to work faster, uh, cutbacks on maintenance, um, both of the trains themselves and of the track uh, cutbacks. Um, on you know repairs to critical infrastructure, um, yeah, and th- you know things being done by skeleton crews and subcontractors, and you know this is this is part of what the union was starting to strike over, and you know the the Biden administration, um, <laughs> they you know they sided with the rail companies to to break the strike. Exactly, and that was like only a few months ago, and literally this was what the workers were talking about. Yep. Safety yeah. and maintenance and all of that stuff. And they broke it and now they're just like, oh, how did this happen? Yeah, like, I mean, I, I, I think know. we can expect to see this kind of thing again and again. There's already been another derailment. Um, but, you know, it's like... <sighs> so, you know, apparently there was... I mean, I this is all... We'll post some articles. This is all... I mean, it's many causes and it's complicated, but... Uh, Apparently, with the Obama administration tried to further regulate trains carrying hazardous materials, um, to they tried to uh, compel them to install uh, better braking on the trains, um, and the industry lobbied really hard um, for you know less severe rules, and then they lobbied Trump again. And he repealed the break rules that the Obama administration had enacted. And um, then, you know, Biden didn't reinstate them um, or Buttigieg, you know, both of them. So it's just like, I mean, just so much greed and corporate malfeasance. And, you know, I mean, it's like, Oh man, I think I saw the worst take I've ever seen in my life yesterday um, from this kind of, you know, centrist think tank pundit type person. And he was saying that like, you know, people just 
care about this because it's white people and it's like or leftists specifically just care about it because it's white people i do think that there is a definitely a racist element um with the way that right-wing media is talking about it but people were talking about you know leftists were really talking about flint you know for yeah. years and years and i'm never gonna forget that moment that i saw in michael moore's documentary of obama yeah. drinking the glass of water yeah in flint you know to to like minimize the safety threat and to try to convince people that this toxic water was safe for them to drink and that was the moment that i kind of really understood on a much deeper level like you know how like whatever assumptions I, I had that these people were even by these people, I mean, like Obama, Hillary, just even remotely concerned about us. Uh, it was shattered in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. There's no empathy or nothing. And also like out of like, like I'm not a train expert, but out of all of the things that you want to save money on, I feel like breaks maybe are an important element. I would say. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah, and and it's just, and for what you know, like, and it's it's also like frustrating because like Biden is like I don't like a, like his whole like even campaign and and all of that labeling himself as this train guy and we would not stop with the fucking train uh, commercials and stuff and literally the second he became president he was just like I guess uh, I'm not into that anymore I gave it to Pete you know. And Peter's not doing shit. That guy is so useless. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's just a lot of blame shifting. But, I mean, the Secretary of Transportation is the chief regulator for these train companies. Like, it's literally his job to regulate these train but, companies. Yeah, but isn't that this is like the main democratic thing to do is literally, like, look at the guy who has all the power and be like, this cute boy has nothing. He can't do anything. And I'm like, who can? And they're like, maybe the past administration should have done something. And I'm like, no, we're talking about now. Yeah. Like, no, he can't do anything. He's weak. Sorry about that. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just... Uh, this is just really, really, really disgusting. Um, I mean, you know, I, I think that, you know, anything from Pete Buttigieg that is not, you know, uh, dramatically expanding the regulations on rail safety rules is just, you know, really insufficient. Um, yeah. There, there was actually, uh, David Sirota was reporting on the, the Buttigieg's uh, agency was actually considering a proposal to weaken the safety rules. Um, so, I mean, you know, this reminds me a lot of like the gun debate where it's just like so obvious what should happen, which is like, you know, at minimum, like if, you know, you're a violent, like if you have a history of violence, you should not be able to just buy a you know, an automatic weapon that day, you know, at a base level. And pretty well, yeah. much everyone agrees on that, you know, at least on some some level of gun regulation. And it just can't happen because, you know, for so many reasons. But like many, the lobbyists, you know, corruption, capitalism, well, you know, all the reasons that, that are also at play in this. Um, <laughs> you know, I, and there's really, I don't think anyone who sees like a, 
mushroom cloud of toxic chemicals and things. So this is, you know, how yeah. things should should be going. And yeah, and, and also like saying it's safe and okay, like there is like things under control. And I'm like, okay, why isn't any of you guys down there? Like if it's so safe, like why is Pete not there? Why is Biden not there? Why uh, Kamala Harris is not there? Go hang out there and let me know how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, this is really horrible. And, you know, we do need to keep our eye on people to judge and uh, you know i mean i don't really know what we can do i don't know what we can do i mean it just you know i I'm, I'm not sure that there is any way for a regular person to impact this but i know that it doesn't help to believe that you know pete biden uh don't have the power to to do anything um no you know yeah rashida Tlaib and ilhan omar have been you know, calling, calling it out. Um, you know, I mean, it's just Pete Buttigieg. He was, you know, he's a McKinsey guy. He was involved in, um, you know, his previous career included a uh, work with a company that, you know, fixed the price of bread. bread of yeah. the price of bread. So, I mean, he's just uh, in terms of like a more sort of corrupt, shitty, um, yeah, corporate deference yeah, background. That's yeah. Like, Absolutely. And he like, yeah, and he has zero empathy. Like, he's like a fucking robot. Yeah, he's a sociopath. I feel exactly. so bad for Jason. I feel so bad for Jason, who I think we've talked about on the show before your day. Jason is just like a, uh, he's like an improv guy. Like, he did improv. He's like a good <laughs> oh, that's so person, funny. probably, that like loves the theater and accidentally, in my opinion, probably married someone pretty sociopathic. Um, yeah, oh I'm not God. even willing to entertain the idea that it's out of turn to to criticize the regulator of the trains. I think he's only stayed with him when he was like, he was like, oh, this guy running for president. Like, and like, I feel like an improv guy wanted to be the first husband was just like, that was the dream there. But then yeah. it didn't happen. I'm like, well, now it's I'm too too deep into it. I'm married to a train guy now. Yeah, <laughs> man. I think about trains so much more than I want to these days. I have to be honest. I know. I was I not know. meant to be a train person, but no, no, I don't care about is. trains outside of that. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. I went to Albany yesterday uh, mm -hmm. with uh, rights to council and uh, it was, there was a rally and then some lobbying meetings that happened to lobby for tenants to have, um, the right to a lawyer and you know eviction cases and housing court um and uh new york city already has that they don't want enough lawyers but the law was passed first in the country now lots of cities are trying to do that but i mean it's, it's wild that that's not a thing already like mm -hmm. i mean just the balance of power between landlords and tenants is just so skewed and landlords mm -hmm. can basically just do whatever they want and i mean i was just thinking about like all these people who took their day off work um mm -hmm. to go to albany to you know basically fucking beg their legislators to support even the most minimal tenant protections to just have any hope of being like you know considered even remotely alongside 
you know, the real estate board of New York, which is yeah. like, I mean, they did, they did it in 2019, they passed some, you know, real expansion of tenant protections in New York that the landlord organizations are trying to get rid of now, um, trying yeah. to take it all the way to the Supreme Court. But, you know, I mean, it's just like, it's really, it's really frustrating to think how little power we have in this country to be able to enact like even stuff that just seems like it should be like the obvious baseline of decency. Like, even if you're a liberal, even if you love mm -hmm. capitalism, you know, wow. It's just even anything that is like, you know, just, just allowing people to have like the most kind of basic protections. I know. Corporate greed, individual greed too. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Well, do you have anything else before we transition to our interview? Uh, no, uh, I, I have, I have nothing, but, but one thing I saw that I wanted to mention before we go, which is, I think is very funny and everyone should check out, uh, is the, uh, documentary that's coming out soon by Tucker Carlson about the state of comedy. I think maybe it would be the funniest thing you'd ever see. <laughs> well, I will check it out. And, um, all right. So this is Malcolm Harris and, um, thank you so much. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. I am very excited because this week we have joining us the author of the new book, Palo Alto, Malcolm Harris. And I, I'm, I'm very excited because uh, I just read a review of this in the New York Times. And apparently uh, this book is not sufficiently enthusiastic about capitalism, which makes it something that I really want to read. So welcome to the show, Malcolm. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so let's just jump in. What <laughs> is Palo Alto about? So Palo Alto is the history of the small of one small town as a history of California capitalism in the world. And that's sort of the, the subtitle is Palo Alto history of California capitalism in the world, which sounds a little extensive. And it is, it's a, it's a long book. I won't lie. Uh, but I use this story of this town where I spent most of my childhood to tell a story about, uh, modernity and the process of globalization over the last 150 years in the world. I think most people who, you know, are not super familiar with California know Palo Alto mainly because it is, a where a lot of, you know, Silicon Valley is and, and Stanford and, you know, like a lot of uh, the tech stuff is coming out of there. But like, can you give us like a quick, <laughs> I know this is an impossible question, but like, mm -hmm. how did we get to that point? Well, it's a great question, right? Because why does technology become a uh, high technology become a feature of this place where at the start of my narrative, at the end of the 19th century, it's like the edge of the world, right? So California is this last link in the chain of the construction of a global capitalist system connecting across the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and so as such, as something place that's capitalist from the beginning of Anglo-American colonization, they create, really intentionally create through genocidal activity, a blank slate for them to impose the impersonal drives of capital on this just vast, resource-rich piece of land. And one of the ways that they end up doing that, because they have a shortage of wage laborers, 
is that it's really technologically intensive production from the very beginning, from Gold Rush <clears throat> all the way through. And so the tech stuff doesn't begin, you know, in the 1960s. The tech stuff begins in the 1860s. Wow. What kind of tech in the 1860s with the railroads and stuff? Yeah. Well, the railroads, but the mining technology was really the the trigger tech for the West, right? And so you've got uh, hydraulic mining being invented. So they create like high pressure hoses that are used to pump tons of water through. So you can basically like unearth the whole earth so you can fit as much ground as possible through some sieves to try and pull out gold. Uh, and in fact, this technology, this mining technology is so disruptive that they even have to ban it themselves um, and keep it out of California because it's just destroying the land so, so, so fast. And so we see from the beginning this model of like disruptive technology just taking out the landscape. So you go in this book into the history of Palo Alto um, and you talk about the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 and you tie that back to capitalism. And I think most people who are thinking about that time in our history definitely, you know, think about how racist it was and, you know, how xenophobic. But where does capitalism come in there? Well, if you look at where, why were Chinese uh, migrants brought over in mass uh, to California in the first place, and it was as a labor source to build the railroad. This is a like, and it's not that there weren't Chinese miners, um, but when there were Chinese miners who were trying to come and seek their fortune on what they called Gold Mountain, just like everybody else, uh, the Anglo settlers act acted to exclude them, right? So they didn't want uh, Chinese people to come to America and get some gold and leave, go back to China, which is what a lot of Chinese people wanted to do. Uh, they only wanted Chinese people to come and do wage labor, which because they had a shortage of wage laborers in the West. And so Chinese immigration was a solution to that problem. As a result, they've completed the railroad. These are, and people shouldn't get confused about the character of Chinese railroad workers, right? These were like, in terms of jobs available in the world, these were pretty good jobs. They had, they had like, uh, strong consumption power. Uh, they like ate better than a lot of people. Um, and they did have some leverage at the workplace. So we shouldn't be depicting Chinese railroad workers as enslaved or anything like that. These were wage workers. At the same time, it was their foreignness that allowed them to be cut off from the labor movement uh, as it existed among Anglo settlers which was useful for the railroad. So we can't separate the racism of the time from the capitalism of the time because racism was a tool of capitalist production, right? They brought in racialized workers on purpose so that they could benefit from that racialization. I think, you know, in this book, it, it's, it seems like you're making a tie between capitalism and, and other systemic injustices multiple times. In fact, a quote from this review that cracked me up is Harris weaves these threads into a tapestry of systemic injustice and world doom. I, I've been thinking about, um, you know, just like the way that liberals will talk about many of the injustices in our society, you know, racism, sexism, and just the way that uh, capitalism is, is left out of many of, you know, as a, as a motivator for many of those things. Um, 
you know, I was wondering, like, in analyzing the history of Palo Alto, what did it, what did you take away that, you know, might be applicable to the way we, we see our current social ills at this time? It's all applicable. And that's what working on this project, you know, 150 years sounds like a long time. But in the history, even in the history of uh, Anglo-American colonization of North America, that's a short amount of time, right? If you think about 150 years since Jamestown, yeah. you're still in the colonial period on the East Coast, right? And so we really have to think of these last 150 years as still part of the period we're in now. And I think if you talk to historians, um, especially when I was beginning this project, if you talk to historians about what part of American history we really need to understand, to understand right now, a lot of them will say the 1870s, that the 1870s are the moment where we, we need to look at for the globalization of capitalism. The, you know, that's when you've got Chinese uh, railroad workers coming in and having completed the railroad and the tensions around globalization of the labor force. You've got the Civil War uh, and Reconstruction, and you've got uh, globalization in general, right? The full capitalist global system establishing itself for the first time. But California is so often like left out of that 1870s story. And so doing Palo Alto made it really easy because Palo Alto is founded in the 1870s, and not just in the 1870s, but directly as a product of the class tensions and race tensions of the 1870s. So Leland Stanford starts the town because his family had been living up on Knob Hill, which in San Francisco is like the nicest hill in town with the biggest houses. And the workers would gather outside his houses and threaten him. And this was specifically the white labor movement that was mad at him for bringing in Chinese workers who had completed the railroad and tanked their wages, basically. Um, and Leland Stanford takes his family. You know, he doesn't reform the system. What he does is he moves to the suburbs. But the suburbs haven't been invented yet. So he has to invent the suburb to have a place to move from, to escape from his angry workers uh, who are angry about the globalization of capitalist production. So it's really like this moment starts the moment, the, the historical epoch that we're still in. And so that's why I, would, I thought it ended up being a, a handy bookend for the period. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you talk in this book a lot about Stanford. Uh, what do you think that, I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, are think about Stanford as a place where like, you know, rich, rich guys go to school and many of them being assholes, but it, looking at Stanford in a, a historical context, um, what did you take away from it? It's amazing how central Stanford ended up being to this understanding of this period from the beginning. And that's what's so crazy is that it's very successful as a university from the very beginning of its founding at the end of the 19th century. That Herbert Hoover, who becomes president of the United States, is a member of the first class at Stanford University. And not just a member of the first class, but like a real product of the university, that he becomes this really successful mining engineer financier because he's taught these techniques at this technologically advanced school in the West that is the home of mining engineering. And then he takes those lessons and brings them all around the world. Like, it's really, he has this Forrest Gump-like existence where he's in China, he's in Myanmar, he's in Australia, he's everywhere. And he's bringing, he's in South Africa, and he's bringing his experiences in Palo Alto and his knowledge of like Palo Alto-style capitalism, where you start from nothing and do capitalism. Uh, 
It's amazing. And that, and that's Stanford, right? That's now my understanding of Stanford is that is this thing that starts in the 19th century, not something again, that starts in sort of the 1960s or even the 1930s in the radio age, um, which is so often how much, how the history talks about it. Usually the history starts with, you know, a little bit of Leland Stanford at the 1870s and then just jumps ahead into transistors or vacuum tubes. But I think we really need to like focus on every step one period that you talk a lot about in the book is Japanese internment. How did that play out in Palo Alto? And what do you think that our historical understanding is missing from that? Well, there were, it was just under 150 uh, Japanese Americans were interned from Palo Alto. Um, some of them affiliated with Stanford and a few of them. And one of them was a Stanford professor. Uh, another was a Stanford student. And they wrote, some of them wrote memoirs. And so I could, I sort of based my understanding off that period from the memoirs of interned Palo Altans. And they had, what I was sort of surprised to understand was a variety of different experiences, right? That when I thought about Japanese internment, I thought of it primarily as an American civil rights violation, um, which is how we talk about it. But that, uh, at a time when Japan was at war with America, the country that they lived in, that wasn't exactly how these Japanese Americans were primarily thinking about it or only thinking about it. And so I don't, don't want to say that I give a more nuanced understanding of Japanese internment because I don't think that's what I do or, or what we call for. Uh, but I do really focus on the, the memories and experiences of um, Palo Alto Japanese who were interned. And that's a memory uh, that the town should think about more as well as the consequences after because after i talk about when people came back not just japanese but also uh chinese americans and were treated um very poorly by the palo alto community and excluded and, and pushed to the the outskirts of town quite literally so one of the things that I thought was, you know, particularly egregious about this, um, about this kind of ridiculous McCarthyist review is it, it really, um, like just can kind of completely laughed off your, uh, the suggestion that you included in the book, um, for Stanford university to return the 8,000 mm -hmm. acres it owns um, to the descendants of the native people who lived there. Um, why, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, pretty racist and shitty the way that the New York Times treated this, but why do you make that suggestion? Well, again, because this period is so short, the people are still here, right? It's not the, that the, they never went away, right? The Muwekmo Ohlone have lived consistently and trace their lineage through before Stanford came and they're still here. So, and they are a politically constituted organization, tribal organization. They've been denied federal recognition. I talk a little bit about in the book about how they were denied federal recognition. Uh, don't ask Ursula K. Le Guin what the K in her name stands for. Uh, side note. Um, what does it stand for? I want to know. <laughs> it stands for Krober. And uh, so her dad was an anthropologist who ends up sort of somewhat accidentally erasing this tribe from history. Oh, my gosh. Um, quite literally, um, even though they are still there and they've been fighting ever since to reverse this 
basically clerical error that declared them extinct. Wow, I man, I had no idea. I still love Ursula well, Le Guin, but <laughs> yeah, no, not her yeah. fault. Uh, but. And he ultimately felt very, very bad about it. And it's generally seen as a you know, pro-Indian figure in the times. However, uh, the point is that the struggle for recognition, but more than recognition, uh, a land base is ongoing and has been ongoing and continues to be ongoing. And I, I wasn't surprised. I was disappointed to see it, that idea uh, dealt with so negligently, I guess I would say, um, not just in the Times review, but across a, a number of reviews. Some people just don't take the idea of returning land seriously. And it all sounds like some very long ago thing to them. But this book was inspired by, you know, the written ar around the land and water struggles that have been elapsing in this country over the past few years that have been a, a you know, main defining point of politics in our country. And if you look at what are possible futures, possible sustainable futures, what are roads we have as a society, as a number of societies to go forward into the future and not burn ourselves to death on this planet, I think they all involve returning land from the settler colonists who can't maintain it without destroying it. And I think here we have a really, really clear example, both of the destructive tendencies of Anglo-American settler colonialism, as well as a really like nice bunch of land that hasn't been sold since the 19th century that is still owed uh, and has been preserved and an institution that doesn't own the land as a, as a for-profit entity is no individual settler owns this land. And so for me, it seems like a really easy sort of pragmatic suggestion, right? Like college boards of trustees make unaccountable lefty decisions all the time, right? They could just return some land tomorrow if they wanted to. It seems yeah. very easy. So, you know, I've been thinking about a lot how, you know, all of these sort of really uh, terrible ideas that have been coming out of you know, Silicon Valley uh, in recent times about, you know, how we should um, handle our our politics as a country, um, you know, or or just live. I mean, I'm thinking specifically about um, a factor of effective altruism and, mm -hmm. you know, crypto, the libertarianism. Uh, I get pretty irritated with the sort of colonial nature of the the yimby movement sometimes um i wouldn't say sometimes i would say I, I get pretty upset about it on a daily basis but you know i um you know i for myself personally i see this type of like you know techno libertarianism coming out of the bay area as as big of a threat as like the kind of you know more crude uh fascistic tendencies mm -hmm. of desantis um and you know like i mean i think that stuff's horrible too but i think when we put a liberal veneer on something people who are you know in general well-intentioned don't seem to to notice it as much and you know mm -hmm. i was wondering like in, in in terms of thinking about um you know the present of palo alto you know where do you where do you see it heading after looking into it so much yeah, well, I see, I see it sort of spiraling, right? Because it repeats these loops over and over again, these loops of forgetting that one of Palo Alto's main 
products is forgetting, right? Whether that's forgetting that like buses exist so that you can reinvent the bus for money or whatever, yeah, or forgetting that like other people used to live on the land that you live on and that it was stolen from them. Um, just a, a real constant forgetting. Um, and so I guess I, I hope that this book, uh, puts it in this deeper context because I really see it all the way through, right? You can connect the like current right wing and a lot of those, you know, you call them liberals, those effective altruist people, a lot of, I don't think very many of them are liberals. Um, I think they have like esoteric political beliefs that they don't quite understand themselves. That's but true. Yeah. A lot of it ultimately goes back to this idea of natural hierarchy, that there are better people and worse people. And ultimately uh, if you're a believer in this brand of it, better races and worse races. And Palo Alto as a historical project is all about that, right? It's all about the reinstallation of hierarchy while it's under threat all around the world. And Herbert Hoover experiences this personally, right? There are like uprisings at his mines all over the world. There are uprisings at his farms and they have to find new ways to justify their outsized privilege and their outside you know, domination of the world. And they come up with a number of ideas over time, right? Including eugenics and then eugenics over again, and then eugenics over again, <laughs> and then eugenics over again. I want to, so, so I, I just want to get like a little more specific here. Like, what do you mean yeah. by each, when, when you say eugenics and eugenics over again, like what are the actual sort of rebrands of it? Cause I, I think yeah. it's really important to see how it functions. Absolutely. So you see eugenics, Palo Alto start with eugenics as a pal, as a horse breeding program set up by Leland Stanford. Then you see the foundation of Stanford University set up as a eugenics program by David Starr Jordan, who's the founder of the university and a globally prominent eugenicist who sets up a bionomics program at Stanford and really propagates these ideas. You see it again with uh, Lewis Terman, who invents the IQ test and uh starts standardized testing basically within the military with world war one you see it again with bill shockley who's the inventor of the one of the inventors of the point contact transistor as well as one of the most like vehement pseudoscientific racists of the 20th century and he's the one who really like births this like genetic racism idea even though he's not a geneticist at all he's a physicist um, and now you can see it again right and you see it with in the effective altruism style in some parts of that world. I don't want to tar everyone. I'm going to get yelled at. Uh, <clears throat> but some of those people definitely are still repeating these ideas and they don't know that they're repeating these ideas, but they should read this book and understand that they're repeating 19th century ideas. Well, I cannot wait to read this book, even though it, it I mean, it, it does, it sounds like there's a lot of really difficult information in it, but it, it also <laughs> seems like it's something that is um, really important to understand our, our current moment uh, in a historical context. Uh, I didn't even get to talk to you about long-termism. That's another one that just seems like a really almost like wacky justification for hierarchy that a lot of people absolutely oh my goodness yeah right the, it sort of fills in itself once you know the model then you can sort of under, start understanding the products in these terms and then it gets really easy well where can our listeners find you and your book well 
they can find me and my book wherever fine books are sold at their local bookshop, or they can, that's pretty much all they should do. They should go to a bookstore and buy my book. Um, there's also an, an article that you wrote about healthcare that I, I really liked. Uh, I don't know if it was a, a couple months ago, but d- definitely also check that out. We'll post it in the show notes. Um, and uh, are you on, on social media? Can our listeners find you there? Oh, yeah, sure. I'm on Twitter at uh, Big Mean Internet, a name that I still hate that I'm stuck with forever. Oh no. Well, it was super nice to talk to you, Malcolm. Thank you so much for making the time and go check out Malcolm's book. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Muhammad Al-Sheikhi. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song is performed by Emily Fremgen and written by Emily with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we are at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's, and I am at Mohanad Al-Sheikhi. And Twitter is where you can find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is your land